Help us, God, to be as attentive to you as we were while the choir was singing. Our attention uh, grasped by its beauty, their beauty, the beauty of the music, your beauty. Your goodness, your love, your power. Help us to be attentive in ways that we cannot on our own, that we might uh, receive your spirit, be united with you, be filled with your grace. Give us eyes that are good to see and ears that are good to, see, good to hear and hearts that are receptive soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words deviate in any way from your holy word, may they be quickly forgotten and passed over. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. Some of you know that marathoners have often described mile 20, miles 18 to 20, right in that area in a marathon as the place where they hit the wall. The human body kind of has the capacity to maintain enough energy to get one through about that far in an ordinary marathon for a highly trained individual. So they talk about hitting the wall. We're getting to the place in Colossians where it may be easy to hit the wall, so to speak. So as marathoners have to consciously overcome their physical limitations at that point and keep their pace, I want to encourage you to uh, use all of your resources to uh, stay focused as we press on through the book of Colossians. It's been a while, if it's been a while since you've been here or if you're a guest with us this morning for the first time, uh, welcome. Way back on June 16th, we began a study of the book in the Bible known as Colossians. Colossians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, a city, a community of Christians in a city uh, in what is now Turkey uh, called Colossae. Uh, it was not a city or a church that Paul had ever visited. He heard about it, though, from his friend and co-worker Epiphras, who we think planted the Christian community or the church there in uh, Colossae. Uh, Paul, though, cares a lot about Colossae. He's got a pastor's heart. He's concerned about the falsehoods that are infiltrating the community there. And so he takes it upon himself by the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to write this letter, uh, hopefully to overcome some falsehoods, uh, to teach them and ground them in the truth and the grace of God, and to help them live out those realities or that truth uh, that they have been taught in the beginning and that are now encouraged to continue to live in. We talked in earlier parts of Colossians about how uh, that included the idea that not only who Christ is, but that we are united with Christ in our baptisms and that we're buried with, buried with Christ. But not only are we buried with Christ, but we're also raised to new life with Christ. And it's this new life that Paul is attempting to describe and encourage the Christians in Colossae to step into, to live into, to fully embrace and to be immersed into uh, the life that God has for us in Christ, the life that God intends for us in Christ, the, Paul, the life that Paul wants for the Colossians in Christ. Uh, you remember how Paul spoke about uh, the things that we are to put to death uh, in order that we might live this life fully in Christ, not put to sleep, not put on the shelf, not put in the garage, but put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which he says are idolatry, and anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language, and not telling the truth. Put all of these things to death, Paul wrote. And then Paul said that those of you who are in Christ, chosen by God, holy and dearly loved, uh, don't only empty your life of certain things, but put on 
the virtues of Christ, and he names some of them being uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and spins into that bearing with one another and forgiving one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. And then Paul wrote over all these things, you remember, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity, and which binds us, and which would bind the church in Colossae, together in perfect unity. Last Sunday morning, we read from chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, as we, and we focused on verse 17, in which Paul continues his growing focus on what an in-Christ or a Christ-immersed or Christ-shaped life looks like in practical, everyday life. He goes from sort of the high and lofty theological doctrines and principles and truths in chapters 1 and chapter 2 about reconciliation and the identity of Christ, now down to how this lives out in our everyday lives. He wrote, whatever you do, and this was our memory verse for last week, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about how that means in the character, in the way, in the integrity of Jesus. And so uh, last week's verse, let's say it again. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Last week's verse, Colossians 3.17. Was it already up there? Let's say it together. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ah, I slipped up and said everything instead of all things or all things instead of everything. Whatever you do uh, and wherever you do it, whenever you do it, uh, whatever you do in all things or in everything, in the name and in the way and in the character of Jesus Christ, do your things, live your lives. That was verse 17. And what then follows may be the most practical or at least the most practical and specific application yet in the book of Colossians of what life in Christ looks like. The next nine verses containing what scholars uh, of the scriptures call a hostel in Greek or a house table which in the first century Roman world was a framework or a rubric or a description or a guide for how people in a household were to live. And we must get into the context a little bit and picture what Paul means when he says household or talks about a household. A household was not just uh, a person who owned or lived in a house or a couple or even a nuclear family, but was far bigger than that and included extended family and extended family and other unmarried people who were a part of one's family. It could have and often did include slaves or employees or renters, children. All kinds of people living together under one big uh, roof. And so it was complicated, this household in the ancient world, uh, but it was an important unit of society and culture. And so its proper functioning and proper harmony were of utmost importance not only to the individuals in that household, but also to the larger community as a body. So uh, now on to verse 18 where Paul's guidance for these extended households begins, begins, listen and follow along closely as I read. This is the word of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And now let's close in prayer. Would you pray with me? I think we could just call it, a, call it a morning so that I don't get into any further trouble or any trouble at all. 
I asked my wife if she had any suggestions about how to preach this passage. She said, uh, preach at your own risk. (laughs) You're on your own, honey. I asked one of the many bright, gifted women in the congregation who know the Scriptures well and who have preached or taught the Scriptures in the past uh, if she would be interested in preaching this passage, if she would be interested in preaching for us this morning, she said in no uncertain terms, no thank you. I told Melissa, our church's administrator, that I'd be preaching on this passage this Sunday. She said that she would do me the great favor of shutting down my email account, my church email account, at 10 o'clock this morning for my own benefit. I told our human resources team, which is made up of three particularly intelligent, thoughtful, faithful elders, all three of whom happen to be women, that I'd be preaching from this passage this morning. They graciously assured me that if I did go ahead and preach from this passage this morning, that even if I was terminated this afternoon, that they would go ahead and make sure I got my final check next week, (laughs) and that it would include all of my accumulated but not yet taken vacation. Thank you very much. Thank you, all of you. True story, on Friday, this uh, two days ago, my mother-in-law, having no idea that we're going through Colossians at all, and so certainly having no idea of the scripture that was up for us this morning, emailed to me and Karen and Karen's uh, brother and his wife a humorous video that concluded with the wis- this wisdom for husbands that uh, the secret to a long-lasting and happy marriage is for husbands to learn two words, for husbands to learn two words, and those two words are... Yes, dear. I guess you've seen the video. Do you see, is, that, is that making the rounds? Yes, dear. And so Stephen and the band are going to come back up right now and close us with that closing song. Let's just... Uh... <laughs> I wanted you to sit here close because I felt so isolated and alone with this passage this morning, Kathy. Uh, so um, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Christians, a lot of people and a lot of Christians who have no interest in hearing this verse, this passage read, and much less any interest in hearing it preached. I've planned lots of weddings, I've done lots of weddings over the year, and I always tell the couple that they can select any scripture that they want from the Bible to be read at their wedding, to be a part of their wedding, any scripture at all. And if they'd rather leave that to me, then that's fine. Then I'd be happy to select scripture for their wedding if they'd like. Uh, Either way, And lots of couples have chosen their own scripture. Lots of couples have left that in my hands. Never has a couple said, hey, would you you read for us the verse from Ephesians and the parallel passage from Colossians about wives submitting to their husbands? Could you include that? I often leave open to uh, brides and grooms that they might be able to write their own vows instead of using the traditional ones. Never once has anyone suggested or uh, given to me in their vows uh, words that include the word submit. Never. As a culture, we have tended to associate the word submit or submission with oppression, authoritarianism, tyranny, and or abuse, at least in the context of relationships and particularly the context of marriage. Moreover, we live in a culture that is more focused on a person's rights and freedoms and prerogatives rather than giving up one's rights, freedoms, prerogatives, vis-a-vis submission. And with regard to the negative connotations that the words submit and submission have in our culture, and to many of us in the realm of marriage, some of this is justified, is understandable. Human history, through thousands of years and countless cultures, is tarnished by women being treated like property. 
women being taken advantage of, women being abused, neglected, maltreated, not treated as equals, deprived of equal rights and even basic human dignity. That is our human history. And moreover, some of that has even been done in the name of biblical Christianity and by people claiming biblical authority and by people who have wrongly thought that Scripture permits or even prescribes such treatment of women. All in a gross but sometimes willfully blind misunderstanding of this verse of Scripture and its parallel passage in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. My hope, though, is that with the minutes we have remaining, we'll come to a better and truer understanding of this verse of Scripture. And with that, the goodness and the credibility and the value and the power of God's word and God's way and also of the supremacy of Christ in all things, including in marriage, including for wives, and including for husbands. Of course, not all of us are married some of us are married. Some of us have been married in the past, in our past. Some of us will get married at some point in the future. But all of our lives have intersected and been impacted in some way by marriage. Moreover, there are in verse 18 and the verse that immediately follow it, truth, grace, principles, and guidance for those who are married and for those who are not married. And understanding this verse accurately and well has value and merit for all of us today, regardless of our personal marital status. And so let's consider these things together. The ancient world was different than our world. That doesn't mean that the scriptures are invalid or that we can pick and choose, but we must recognize that context is important. The ancient world was different than our modern world, including with how people lived together and how their relationships were formed. As I've said, people didn't ordinarily live alone back then. They didn't even ordinarily live as couples or even as a basic nuclear family unit. People lived in extended and complicated households. And these households needed structure and organization, clear ways of being together. They were the basic building blocks of society. They were how people were cared for, provided for, and organized or protected. And a man who was usually also husband and father was usually the only fully legal, in other words, recognized by the government as a citizen, person in each household having power over all property and almost absolute authority over every member of a household. They were obligated, the members of a household, to obey him. That's just how it was. And Paul, frankly, doesn't challenge the legal order of the day the civil laws of that time. Therefore, however, the fact that Paul addressed women was all the more surprising. That he recognizes women up front as having ethical autonomy, the ability, the right, the place to make their decisions, to be taught, to make choices of their own was actually revolutionary in his culture. We don't see that in our world and as we read through verse 17. Paul has already earlier in Colossians stated that in Christ everyone is equal. Verse 11 of chapter 3 reads, here there is, here being in this new realm or reality governed by Jesus, 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And we can add man or woman, husband, wife. But Christ in all is all and is in all. Submission, according to Paul's understanding, does not imply an inherent inferiority in Christ or in the church or ontologically with a person. We have to hear that. In Christ, all people are equal. No one is better than someone else. No one is higher on a ladder than someone else. No one has the right to dominate or have dominion over another person. Notice, it is not women in general who are told to submit themselves to men in general in this passage. We can hear that though. Nor is it wives who are told to submit themselves to men in general. Nor is it wives who are told to submit themselves to husbands in general. Rather, it is wives who are told to submit themselves to their husbands and only their husbands, period. But even this is intolerable to many people today. It just rubs us the wrong way. And maybe especially to many women and probably especially to women who have gotten the short end of the stick in marriage, who have been taken advantage of or looked down upon in life or in their marriages. But let's consider the word submit in English, translated from the Greek word hippotasso. Let's say that together. Hippotasso. One more time. Hippotasso. It's an important word, kind of a key to understanding this passage. The word hippotasso does not convey some innate inferiority. The word hippotasso does not convey some innate inferiority, but is used for a mode, a model of cooperative relationship, a demeanor that actually voluntarily puts another person first. Moreover, this putting others first or before oneself is clearly something that is asked or expected of all Christians in the New Testament. And we can pull out verse after verse after verse where we see that. Regardless of that person's rank or gender. When uh, we scroll over to the book of Ephesians, which has a parallel passage written by Paul again to the church in Ephesus and has so many similarities to Colossians. I don't know if you've read that passage But uh, verse 21 says, be subject to one another or submit to one another. And then the editor of most of our English Bibles today puts a break in there and a new subtitle for what follows. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence to the Lord. So verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Editorial break, artificial. Wives, be subject to your husbands. But the word subject isn't there, or the word submit isn't there in the Greek. It's just not there, and it doesn't need to be there, because verse 21 is meant to govern and oversee all of the lines that immediately follow after. And so the English translators insert it there just so that it has a verb in English. Do you follow me? Check it out on your own. Moreover, the word hypotasso in this verse is in the passive voice, not the active voice or tense. And so it really means be submitted to rather than submit, which gives it a sense of voluntary or passive. No one is being dominated or commanded to as much as they are being encouraged to voluntarily of their own free will 
Be submitted to. Wives, be submitted to your husbands. There's a voluntary element in this. In other words, Paul says that a wife is to submit willingly to her husband, but nowhere does he say that husbands are to demand submission from their wives. We got that? Nowhere is a husband commanded to or permitted to demand submission to himself from his wife. It's just not there. We may think that's a natural next step, but it's not. Paul does not say obey either. And in the verses that we'll look at in, that come up next, Paul will say, children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. In the parallel verses that we're coming up in the next couple of weeks. But Paul does not say, wives, obey your husbands. He chooses a very different word and puts it in the passive or middle voice. So written to Christians, including to Christian husbands, is this whole idea of submission uh, among all of them as a community. And it's written to people who are in Christ, to people who have died with Christ and been raised to Christ in new life. Whereas people often came to faith and life in communities and households rather than solely as individuals in ancient times, Paul's assumption is that husbands to at least those who are hearing and are recipients of his letter are also in Christ. That the husbands of the wives in the congregation in Colossae were also in Christ. That's a given. He's writing to wives whose husbands presumably have died to Christ, have been raised to new life with Christ, and who so also live under the love of God in Christ, and who also themselves are submitted voluntarily to Jesus. And then Paul writes, is fitting. And that's just a way of saying, hey, contextually, in your, context, in your context, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting. And he's saying every context is not the same. Uh, context, times, places, cultures are different. So submit yourselves to your husbands in ways that are fitting. But the bigger addition is this in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. And what is fitting in the Lord if we rewind and think about all the things that we've talked about? What are the virtues of the Lord? Patience, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving one another, with love covering over all of that. Paul assumes that those are the virtues that are coming to define not only all of the people who are in Christ, but especially and particularly husbands. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, with the Lord being Lord over all of these things. And so when a woman, a wife, submits herself to her husband in the Lord, she is in some ways also submitting herself to the Lord in as much as he represents the Lord. If a husband is not in the Lord, in some ways all bets are off. Paul leaves somewhat of a loophole as he amends the standard cultural relationship expectations, requirements of that day. And notice that he does. In some ways, Paul leaves and doesn't touch the civil laws of the culture at that time. But in some ways, he's bringing about this revolution. 
and turning them over on their heads. He does this next by not leaving alone a command or a guidance for wives, but also adding verse 19, which goes like this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And this is revolutionary in the ancient world. Husbands in the secular context, in Judaism, in Greek culture and philosophy, had no command like this laid upon them anywhere. They had total and strict dominion over their wives and every member of their household. And so Paul introduces something that was culturally or could have been just as shocking. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In Ephesians, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we know two things, that love is not an emotion, love is not a feeling in the scriptures, but it's to wish someone well, to, be, to have another person's best in mind, to be committed to what is best for another person. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Of course, he died for the church. He gave his all for the church. He emptied himself for the church. He sought the best for the church, the world, and everyone who is in him. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, the verb harsh or be harsh is in the passive or middle voice in Greek, as you can kind of tell in English. Paul doesn't allow a loophole for husbands whose wives push back. Husbands whose wives aren't always submitting in a continuing sense. Husbands whose wives put their feet down. Husbands whose wives dig in. Paul says you do not have permission to to be harsh with them ever at all. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It had been permissible, it was normal for husbands during that time to be harsh with their wives. And Paul creates a new ethic within a fairly traditional house table from that culture. In a Christian marriage, the husband knows himself to be dearly loved by God, and Paul commands that husband to love his wife similarly, to not be so concerned about rights but about responsibilities. Therefore, if a wife is asked to submit, as Paul does, it is not to submit to a husband's tyranny, but to a husband's love. If a wife is asked or called to submit to her husband, it is not to his tyranny or to his ungodliness or to his oppression, but to his presumed love, as in Christ, like Christ. And that is a whole different thing. And that creates an environment and a context where a person might just be willing or even eager to submit. To someone who is compassionate, and kind, and humble, and gentle, and patient, and forgiving, and full of love. I could submit to a person like that. Could you? And do you see how doing so is in one's own best interest? Does that make sense? What Paul writes is revolutionary in the best sense of the word, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul could have wrote, written a lot of different things. Wives, you don't need to submit to your husbands, especially if they're not in Christ. Be your own head, be liberated, be free. Paul would have then been and been seen and heard of, heard by those outside the church as destroying or at least undermining the whole fabric of their society, which in turn would have turned people away from the church and the gospel. And Paul didn't want that. And so it's important that we remember context. Context is in some ways everything. It's hard to, uh, to preach this verse in this passage because I fail at it all the time. I don't live into it. I haven't and I won't as I could and as I should. And many of the rest of you who are husbands have also failed. And maybe some of you who are wives have pushed back on Paul's admonition through the leading of the Spirit. But none of that invalidates the goodness, the reality, the truth of what Paul commends to the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands in ways that are fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is a new ethic for marriage, a different kind of marriage even in the first century, and certainly a different kind of ethic today. Marriage as an institution is still desperately in need of revolution and renovation and healing in our world today. We see the supremacy of Christ in bringing a new way of understanding how men and women, husbands and wives, and later in the next weeks, parents and children, employers and employees, relate to one another out of reverence for Christ, willing to submit, filled with God's spirit, dominated not by tyranny, but by love. May our relationships, may our marriages, for those of us who are married, more and more take on these characteristics as with God's help, we clothe ourselves in the virtues of Christ. May this be so. Let's pray. None of us coming into this space this morning and coming together had fond ideas or feelings about the idea of submitting, submission. We have been trained and taught and seen that what we should do is stand up for our own rights, to be number one, to follow no one but ourselves. Help each of us first, God, to live into our baptism, to die with Christ, that we might be raised to new life with Christ. To put to death the things that lead to death and that are death with your help and to clothe ourselves in the things of Christ and in Christ himself. And as we do, rehabilitate our marriages, rehabilitate our relationships, rehabilitate our understanding of marriage and what it looks like to be in Christ and to have his kingdom come in our households, in our lives, in our relationships. And in all of this, may we 
find great joy and may your name be greatly praised. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.